It's time to talk Sixers. Ben down the lane. Oh, baby. Ben Simmons between the legs, and then he rocks the rim. Here on the broadcast, the official podcast of Sixers.com. Here's a steal by Covington. A three ball is in the air. And good. Robert Covington pours in another three. Now, here's today's episode. And the plot in the 76ers Eastern Conference quarterfinal series against the Miami Heat. Thickens, series shifting to South Florida, all tied up at one apiece. Game number three on Thursday night at 7.30. Brian Seltzer from Sixers.com welcoming you back for another postseason pod edition of the broadcast. Coming up on this episode, we are going to hear from Rob Mahoney of Sports Illustrated talking about some of the playoff series we've seen around the rest of the league so far, plus, of course, heavy analysis of the Sixers and Heat and also his takes on some of the year-end awards. Rob has an official ballot, and members of the 76ers, whether it be the coaching staff or the playing roster itself, well represented on Rob's ballot. So we'll get into that. And we'll also spend a few minutes with T.J. McConnell talking about the toughness that this series has taken on the tone of physicality and what was a neat moment for him when he was out there in game two at the center on Monday night. So all that in just a moment. Reminders that to subscribe to the podcast, you can go to a couple places. You can go to iTunes, you can go to Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud as well. Type in Sixers Podcast Network. That should take you to our feeds. We would love to have you as a subscriber if you are not yet one already. Game one, we saw the 76ers in the second half go small. That keyed a huge rally and run. That put the 76ers in position to take that game running away, 130-103. Game two, Miami, which was definitely physical and aggressive in the first half of game one, ratcheted up that approach that much more from start to finish on Monday night, and they clamped down on defense, made matters a little bit more difficult for Ben Simmons, particularly in the second quarter in which they held Simmons and the Sixers to 13 points and ended up leaving Philadelphia with a win to the tune of 113 to 103. So now it's all tied up going into game number three. Sixers practiced on Tuesday at the training complex in Camden before leaving Wednesday morning to head down to Miami. And before the Sixers got out of town, thought the timing was appropriate in a certain way to speak with TJ McConnell. And here's why. When I was thinking about who on the 76ers to talk about toughness and physicality, T.J. McConnell was the first name that came to mind, and it really seems like in these first two games in the playoffs, really hard fought. Describe what level it's been ratcheted up to now, the intensity in the playoffs. Yeah, it's about as high as it can get. Um, you know, we, we really shot the ball well in game one, and we knew that they were going to make an adjustment off ball. And, um, you know, they just really got physical with us getting through screens and um you know threw a couple punches at us and I thought we responded but they just made some timely shots and and big shots at that and uh you know we have to just be ready to respond next game and play with the same toughness that we did but execute a little better what is it about the intensity that specifically changes is it just like an urgency thing where you can tell guys realize just how high the stakes are yeah um when you have to work as hard as you can to get a shot off, um, it's hard and it takes you out of your offense and, and it, it can mess you up as a team. And um, they did a really good job of that. And I thought we did a really good job as well. Um, they just made a few more shots than we did. Coach Brown said that you guys spent Tuesday watching the entire second quarter from 
game too. What's a film session like that? Uh, like how does he present to you the material that he's trying to get across and adjustments that he hopes you make? Yeah. Um, you know, a 13 point quarter, you don't see that too often, um, from us. So just the things that we could have done better and, um, things we can clean up and it's really that simple just defensive mistakes and stuff we we didn't execute on offense last thing i know that you guys are in the thick of this competitive series right now but you think maybe at some point whether it's this summer down the road you can look back and remember a moment where in a home playoff game the city of philadelphia is chanting tj tj in the middle of a playoff game that's got to be pretty cool yeah um you know, I could go on and on for hours uh, about the fans. Um, I truly love them. Um, that was a that was a pretty cool moment in in my basketball career to have a fan base in a city behind you like that. And um, you know, I just thank them. It's you know, it's been a long three years since I've gotten here for me and a few others that have stuck around, and they've stayed behind us. And you know, just you just you just love the people here, and it's. Um, it, it, it's incredible, and you know, like I said, I could keep going on and on, but you know, just so much love for the people that uh, you know cheer for us and stick stick with us. Well put, TJ. Good luck in Game Three. Thank you. Ultra appreciative, TJ McConnell, for the love he received from the sold-out faithful at the center on Monday night. He was only on the court for. About six minutes' time, but still there was that moment when he was getting ready to go to the free throw line and the crowd was chanting, TJ, TJ, TJ. Great stuff from McConnell. Always good stuff, digitally speaking and in print, from the next guy we're going to have on the podcast. His name is Rob Mahoney. He writes about the NBA for Sports Illustrated. He is the host of, in my opinion, perhaps one of the best, if not the best, NBA podcast out there right now, it is a crowded marketplace. But Rob's Breakaway podcast, so in-depth, so well-edited, uh, well-written, and well-interviewed. It is fantastic. And we bring him back onto the podcast right now. Rob, thanks so much for spending a few minutes. To start things off, how does a national writer cover something as complex and all as encompassing as the playoffs, and yet you and your fellow national media colleagues seem to hit all the nails on the head and get pretty in depth it's it's a balance for sure and especially in this first round where there's just so many games a lot of it's just kind of scrambling to keep up um you know i'll watch every every minute of action in the first round especially you know because i'm not traveling right now so it's easier to keep up with everything and so right now it's just kind of you know getting a feel for all the series getting a feel for all the teams and how they how they like to react to things how they want to react to things especially when you're looking at some new cores and some fresh blood in the playoffs and some different kinds of combinations of players or coaches who haven't been coaching these particular groups, you want to see how teams are, are reacting to the punches that are being thrown at them because that's really what, what determines how effective you're going to be in the long haul is your ability to adapt to the first challenge and the second challenge and the third challenge from the opposing coaching staff and from the players on the floor and how they're attacking things. So a lot of it's just kind of getting into that read and react rhythm of the playoffs that make them so interesting, that make you know, a game one so different from a game two or a game three. Uh, so yeah, right now it's a lot about feeling these teams out and seeing you know, kind of what the rhythms of the postseason are going to be. And then as we get into late first round, into the second round, I think we have a pretty clear idea of at least what these teams' postseason, postseason identities are going to be. And there's some variance, obviously, from round to round and opponent to opponent. 
but I think we can start to see some of the through lines emerge. We are definitely going to dive into 76ers heat and all things Sixers related, but uh, also wanted to get your perspective on what we're seeing from some of the other playoff series, in particular uh, storylines that emerged from Tuesday night's action. Um, We mentioned your great podcast, Fantastic, The Breakaway, at the start of the interview. A few months back you had a piece on DeMar DeRozan for the podcast and how he's just evolved and incorporated more and more into his offensive skill set. Well, there he was in Tuesday's game, uh, dropping a career-best 37 in postseason play. The three ball was working for him. What's been your sense of what we've seen from DeMar and the Raptors now two games into that series? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that, first of all. But um, yeah, DeMar is a really interesting guy as a scorer just because so much of his game has been rooted in what are kind of the subtle ways he can develop. We all know that for years he's needed a three-point shot. For years he's needed to, to move the ball a little more effectively. But opponents know that too. And they know what he can and can't do. They know where they need to push him on the floor. And so the ways he works around those limitations and that he has in this series in particular, I think, has been pretty fascinating. We've seen stretches where he's come at, you know, around screens, really looking to facilitate, really expecting traps and maybe been even a little too tentative in terms of like really pushing for his on his own scoring in the situations. And so he's, he's kind of learned through, you know, minutes at a time, possessions at a time, stints on the floor kind of what this defense is willing to give up to him and whatnot. And in game two, that turned out to be a bunch of pull-up three-pointers, a bunch of spot-up threes. He's still moving the ball pretty well in this series, which was a real strength of his in game one, even when he wasn't scoring well. I mean, he's, he's a tremendous offensive player and a guy who, in terms of his skill level, I mean, his technique is just just off the charts. It seems like both for him personally and the Raptors collectively, those are two entities that are trying to shed some perceptions that have chased them around in recent seasons and that there's a different type of determination about them to get rid of some of that stuff this year. Is that the way that you see it and maybe you even picked up on in speaking with DeMar? Oh, definitely so. But I, I, mean, I don't think those perceptions are unfair. I think that right. you know, the way the Raptors have performed, you know, they've had some really good playoff games in years past, but the Game 1 stuff has obviously been very real in terms of their lack of success there their inability to get past, you know, LeBron-led teams and certain kinds of opponents and and even, you know, going more granular with DeRozan, you know, what kinds of players usually give him trouble in a, in a series, you know, the, the long-armed wings who are able to take away some stuff from him and how he's supposed to work around those kinds of players. Those, those problems have all been very real. And so it's not an issue necessarily of the perception being out of whack with reality, but just those reputations and, and what we do with them and how we process them. And, you know, I think... You could make the argument for years that that reputation was a burden to the Raptors, that it caught up to them in a way that may have even affected their performance in some cases. And this year, I think there's there's definitely a sense of change and a sense of distance from it because, you know, they came into training camp with such different priorities as a team where, you know, they were running scrimmages where they really weren't allowed to shoot long twos, where they needed to move the ball a certain number of times before they could shoot. And so when you instill the kind of a different ethic to your offense, I think even if you have similar personnel, it's hard to come back into the playoffs and feel like you're the same team. I think there's an an inevitable distance there. Raptors off to a good start. Pelicans off to a great start in Portland. They finished the regular season on a really high note, did New Orleans, but do you see this coming for them? What were your expectations going into this series against the Trailblazers for them? I expected the series to be close just because these teams are really not separated by much in the standings, in their, you know, net rating and statistics over the course of the season. You know, it, it really was a pretty a pretty close matchup for, a, you know, what would traditionally be 
a little more lopsided with the three six potentially. And so I thought the Pelicans really had a fighting chance, and especially when you look at kind of the dynamics of these teams where both are pretty top-heavy in terms of they have clear stars, Anthony Davis being probably the best player in the series, uh, but Drew Holiday's been great all season long. I, I was wondering more, you know, what are they going to get out of Nikola Mirotic, who's been really fantastic in the series? What are they going to get out of Rajon Rondo, who I think has filled the exact role they need him to fill? And when we look at Game 2, even guys like you know Darius Miller hitting huge shots, Ian Clark hitting huge shots— and so I think really they've been able to better kind of position their supporting cast to be successful. Where it's really tough when when you're a team like the Blazers, where every time Damian Lillard or CJ McCollum comes around a ball screen, <clears throat> they're they're seeing a lot of pressure. They're seeing multiple defenders. They're seeing long arms. And so the the incentive is to get the ball to Al Farouk Aminu or Mo Harkless or one of the open bigs on the perimeter who who's able to hit a spot up three or able to take a spot up three at least. And there's just a lot of pressure in that scenario for that shot to hit when you're reducing a lot of your offense to that one option, to basically a shooter you wouldn't want taking a lot of attempts in a game, taking more than usual and being forced to hit as the sustenance of your offense. And so it's really it's been really tricky for them. And I think C.J. McCollum was able to find some, you know, some lapses in the defense, some little gaps to attack, but Lillard is still kind of finding his way through this series. And so a lot of it's going to depend in terms of Portland's survival on what Lillard can get going and what openings he can find, what seams he can find to attack, because the Pelicans have just been overwhelming. And, you know, Drew Holiday and Anthony Davis's defense in particular has, has really just been exceptional. Drew Holiday, one-time All-Star with the 76ers, but I think you could probably make the case that this season, by all accounts, arguably his best, played in every game but one, averaged some career highs in certain areas, net rating pretty solid. I think the public, and not not so much uh, media, because I know that you voted for him, but is there enough of an appreciation for Drew Holiday out there and, and what he's been doing? Well, I think some of it comes from the injuries in recent seasons where it was easy as the NBA became just flush with all of these great point guards to kind of forget about Drew a little bit, to, to you know, oh, the Pelicans aren't that good, so he must not be that good, or he's not on the court, so how, you know, he's kind of out of sight, out of mind in that respect. But he's always kind of flown a little bit under the radar just because of his type, because he's not a huge assist point guard necessarily, and this year he's playing even more off the ball, so that's been even more true. And as a scorer, it's kind of, it kind of comes in bunches, it comes and goes. But, I mean, the defense is the steadying force there. And that's been there his entire career where he's just so big and so much, like, in terms of his physical presence is so different from every other guard in the league that he, it really makes him an effective denial defender. So if you're looking for a player who can keep the ball away from the opponent's best player, he's, he's one of the best options for that in the league. And then once they get the ball, as we've seen in this series in particular, he can just wall up and he's so tough to get passes around, to get shots over, to dribble by just because of his reach and his hands. He's, he's an incredible defensive player. And so I think at least now we're, we're starting to come around to that. And some of it's an improvement on his part, too, where I think he's always been very good. But this version of Drew Holiday we're seeing right now is definitely even the best defensive version we've seen. You mentioned the punch-counterpunch dynamic. Going into game number three, 76ers and the Heat, what have you seen so far? It's been a really fun series. And it's one that, you know, I, this was one I had circled in terms of I really want to pay, you know, lock in and pay as close attention as possible to this series just because I have a lot of respect for what the Heat do in terms of the way they defend. And I have a lot of respect for the way that the Sixers' offense has evolved over the course of the season. I think that's probably not been talked about enough in terms of what they've had to do without Joel, what they've done with, with Ben Simmons in terms of his role in the offense uh, really becoming 
you know, a facilitator in a different way in a lot of the stuff that they run. And a lot of that has to do with the emergence of the shooters over the course of the year where, you know, guys like Redick and Ilyasova have just, or sorry, Redick and uh, Bellinelli have just been so tremendous coming off of screens and what they're able to get in terms of kind of the interchange and the play there. And I think that's where things really tightened up uh, in game two, where Miami was up and into everything in terms of guys com- coming off of screens, really taking away the open shot that comes around that screen for the first time where, I mean, if you watch Marco Bellinelli play, he has the greenest of green lights in terms of when he can fire. And so to take away that first option and say, okay, we're going to make you do something else. We're going to play a little close to you. We're going to make you put the ball on the floor. It, I think it, it got the Sixers off just enough where, you know, I think you could look at game two and say, apart from one kind of dry spell, one lull in their offense, that's probably a game they could win. And right. so, but but I mean, that's what it's going to come down to with these teams where, the Heat offense is not going to be explosive, but their defense is going to put the clamps on you for a couple minutes at a time every game, and if, if not more than that. And you have to really fight through it. You have to fight through all the physicality, which in the playoffs is obviously you know even more of a presence and a heightened thing in its own right. But, I mean, the Sixers have a ton of talent. They have a lot of shooting. They play really smart basketball. <clears throat> Excuse me, really smart basketball. It's just a matter of kind of overcoming what the Heat are going to put in front of you, which at least to this point has been a really remarkable effort, I think. And for my money, the coaching matchup is terrific. Obviously, Eric Spolster has been there, done that. And as we segue into getting to some of the members of the 76ers who appeared on your year-end NBA awards ballot, you had Brett Brown number one for Coach of the Year. And this is a real neat platform and form in which to see Brett getting a chance to not only, as he did this past year, coach with some legit depth of talent but now taking that into the playoffs and seeing how it all unfolds there it i mean he's done a really great job and i think the jump that they've made this year obviously they're a much more talented team than they were all the young guys are taking meaningful steps forward but when you talk about the development of young players i think you have to start with the coaching staff in terms of the difference in dario Saric between last year and this year and that in itself i think is is a pretty significant move and you start from things like that, you move into the way this team has played offensively, the stuff they throw at the wall on a game-to-game basis, you know, they're varying up their playbook all the time. They're, th- they're running out different kinds of offense, trying different kinds of things. And that's one thing I really wanted to reward with my ballot in particular in terms of how I was thinking about Coach of the Year was who were the most creative coaches in the NBA this year, who attacked their problems from the most creative perspective. And so, you know, Brad Stevens is on my ballot. He obviously got so much out of the Celtics this year by working around not having Gordon Hayward, working around not having Kyrie Irving or Marcus Smart or guys who were in Marcus Morris, guys who were in and out of the lineup. They were missing so many pieces that there had to be some creativity there. Quinn Snyder, who I think kind of made an imp- improvisational offense in Utah that's been really pretty effective considering the pieces they've had. And then Brett, who really had to rework a lot of what the Sixers were doing on the fly over the course of the year. And I think even in part just trusting, you know, the Sixers had the best lineup in the NBA this season with with their starting five. And trusting Ben Simmons to be a functional point guard, knowing that you have the pieces around him defensively to switch things around so much on a night-to-night basis where, you know, if you want to have Covington guard the point guard like like they're doing in this playoff series, you can do that. If you want to put Redick on a point guard, you can do that. And trust that you don't need you know, a TJ McConnell type in there necessarily, you can do it if you want, but you can also just put your best five players on the floor and make that work. And that's not a revolutionary thought, but I think it's the kind that because of the particular talents of the players involved, 
in that five-man unit, some coaches might talk themselves out of it just for the sake of kind of manning a more traditional lineup. And it's things like that that I think uh, make Coach Brown's job this season just a, a real a real achievement, I think, in terms of the development of this team. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it almost sounds as if you're saying that with this vote, it really is rewarding tactical decisions and maneuvering, whereas some people you know, might look at Brett as a legit Coach of the Year candidate doing some part to back pay in a sense for what he went through the last four years and where he's gotten the 76ers to now but it seems like you've really identified some x and o stuff um that stood out which i think a lot of fans in philadelphia were wondering how that would shake out when brett finally got a chance to put his arms around a team that had a shot at contending for something yeah definitely so i mean the other stuff factors in for sure just in terms of i don't i did not expect this to be a 52 win team this year uh, and, and I think that, you know, getting Joel healthy for, for a majority of the year is a big part of that. But even the stretches without him were, were so impressive. And I think, you know, you don't want to be swayed too much by recency in terms of how, how a team is playing right at the end of the season before you're casting your ballot. But the Sixers made such a statement in that stretch, not just by winning all the games that they did, uh, but just by the way they were playing, the way that, you know, they were able to really reverse the trend where over the first half of the season – the Sixers, you know, with Ben Simmons on the floor, but without Joel, were not a terribly effective team. And the fact that they were able to spin that idea on its head over the course of the year to turn that into yet another kind of net positive for them uh, is just a great example of what Brett did so effectively this year and that coaching staff on the whole in terms of really, really getting the most out of a wide variety of very versatile pieces on that roster. On your official ballot, as we said, your first, you have Brett Brown for Coach of the Year. You also voted for Ben Simmons, Rookie of the Year. You have any idea or sense how close that race is going to end up being? I haven't talked to too many other media members who have voted Donovan Mitchell first. Obviously, he's going to be second on every ballot that he's not first on. He's had an incredible season. But I think it, it seems like one of those things that split in terms of the dialogue over the course of the year. There have been months at a time or weeks at a time where Donovan Mitchell seems like he's been at the center of the universe, and for good reason. He's had an incredible year. But I, I think overall, most of the voters that I've spoken to are, are lean, you know, at least at the time that I spoke with them, leaned Simmons or voted for Simmons. He really has done so many different things. And as you said, the empowerment of him as a point guard, uh, to me, it's just like the whole demeanor that he gives off. Been there, done that. Um, not seeming like he's a real true first-year player didn't run into any rookie wall. Were you curious to see how the Ben at the point situation would work out? Were you skeptical at any time whether or not it would actually have staying power? I was skeptical only in the sense that it was going to demand a lot of variance on night to night in terms of how they manage specific things, especially the defensive matchups. And so that's one area where I think that's a credit to his rookie of the year case and his, I mean, he was a candidate for the all defensive teams this year, Ben Simmons. I was going to ask you about that. If you, even if his name came into your mind for that um, section of the ballot too. Oh, it absolutely did. I mean, he's just been so good. And again, he can guard so many different kinds of players where if he had come in this year and he played defense, like a usual rookie, which is generally not a good thing. And, you know, rookies by and large are not effective defensive players. So if he had been a typical rookie on defense, it may have created more problems because then you're doing even more shuffling. You're doing even more compensating. You're trying to find this with this unusual lineup, kind of how all the pieces fit together. And it might have just kind of broken it in a tiny way that's a little bit difficult in terms of managing him as a full-time point guard and the players you can put around him. I mean, that's really what it comes down to is Ben Simmons plays the type of game where 
you can put a lot of different kinds of players around him because he's going to handle the ball very effectively, but he doesn't necessarily need it all the time because he can facilitate, because he can he's, can be a really effective screener, because he can catch on the move and make plays and attack the basket, and he's so big and strong that he, he can really be used in a variety of ways. And so, you know, that that flexibility in terms of what he gives you, I think, is what really elevated him as a point guard because he doesn't need to be just a traditional run, pick, and roll every possession on the floor type of point guard. And that's where I think it really unlocked a lot of what the Sixers could do. Then you throw in someone like a Robert Covington who can be used versatile on the defensive end, and I know that you put him for your first-team all-defensive squad, and it just seems like it adds that much more to that side of the floor. And that's been the area where, going back to day one, Brett has talked about trying to build this thing. We've seen the offense grow by leaps and bounds over the course of this season, take on different shapes. But through it all, it's been the 76ers defense start to finish the season that was at a pretty elite level, and um, it seems like you were willing to recognize Rob for his efforts on that front. Yeah, I mean, when they have all their guys healthy and in there, they're, just, they're such a pain to work, not even to score against, just to get through your offense against. And Covington, I think, is a huge part of that, where – Obviously, you're worried about what Joel Embiid is going to do to you if you get to the rim and just obliterate your shot. Or you're worried about Ben Simmons rotating over and just having this huge body in your way. But the way that Covington can apply pressure on the perimeter, you know, I mean, he has such amazing hands, such amazing preemption in terms of knowing which way guys are going to try to attack, how to get over screens that other players might not see or might get blindsided by. He's, I mean, he's a joy to watch in terms of his defensive performance specifically. To me, it's not always so much um, what's going on in one-on-one situations with him, but just the disruption that he causes, getting his hands in there, you know, uh, wreaking havoc in passing lanes, um, doing little things that just, you can tell, makes an offense look uncomfortable. Absolutely. And when they're uncomfortable like that, it's like everything becomes, you know, 5%, 10% more difficult in terms of maybe they hesitate a little bit more before throwing a pass in his direction Maybe they don't want to attack the side of the floor that he's on. They have to kind of rewrite or reroute their offense you know, around him. To, and, and when you're already talking about a team that has so many other strong defensive players on the floor at various levels, where even if you get past that first line of defense, you're going to have you know, a tough second line or a tough third rotation that's going to be coming your way. Having a guy like Covington who's really you know, wreaking havoc out there, picking off passes, getting his hands, getting deflections, it really makes you think twice about things that you need to be doing decisively. And I think that's where the Sixers really thrive, is in really locking teams up by making them kind of get in their own heads. You also gave Joel Embiid some love, number two on the defensive player of the year list in uh, second team All-NBA. Um, when you uh, and uh, second team All-Defensive as well. But uh, as you look out to the rest of the postseason, what are the uh, top storylines before letting you go that you're going to be focused on the most that you're most intrigued by? I mean, I think Joel's return is a big part of that, just in terms of it's been a little bit since we've seen the Sixers with him in the lineup. So, you know, figuring out, you know, just how easy that acclimation is going to be or difficult uh, getting him back in the lineup. He's, I think his talent is indisputable. His effectiveness on the floor is indisputable. But this is a team that's gotten into a nice rhythm by learning to live without him. And, you know, you would hope that that would continue in the minutes where, you know, he's on the bench or resting in the future. But there's going to be a bit of a change in terms of the, you know, you're not running so much you know dribble handoff into the hands of shooters necessarily when Joel's on the floor and so the way that the Sixers kind of change their offense to fit his inclusion whenever that turns out to be is something I'm definitely watching other than that I mean I think that 
the Warriors and the Rockets are, are pretty much, uh, you know, I don't want to look forward too much, but I don't have a lot that I'm looking forward to in those series necessarily other than, you know, I think the Timberwolves put up a good fight in game one, but I'm looking forward to, you know, how involved can Carl Anthony Towns be in a, in a switch-heavy series? How involved does he want to be? Do the Timberwolves want him to be? Where in game one, we saw, you know, Every time that uh, the Rockets switched on a on a Wolves pick and roll, it was the guard attacking a big. It was never really Towns posting up and taking advantage of that matchup, which is something to watch as well. And then I'm really anxious to see how Utah rallies in their series with the Thunder, uh, just in terms of Paul George had such an amazing game one. And, you know, the defensive player of the year race this year between Embiid and Rudy Gobert was so challenging, but Gobert had such an amazing defensive season. He's just like maybe slightly more consistent in terms of his positioning, in terms of what where you expect him to be on the floor than Embiid is, although really you can't go wrong with either choice. And I think that the Thunder, if anything, kind of took advantage of that a little bit in game one, where they knew exactly how far Rudy Gobert was willing to step up on a you know on a ball screen for Paul George. And so they were able to kind of get into that pull-up jumper space, get those pull-up threes going, and really pull Utah out of their defensive system a little bit. And so given that, you know, defense is so important to what makes the Jazz effective, you know, if, if they're not able to kind of stay in their stuff and, and really put Gobert around the rim and in a position to stop Russell Westbrook drives and things like that, that's going to be a really tough series for them. But the Jazz have been so good this year in spite of all the injuries that they've had, the absences that they've had that I really would hesitate to count them out of any series because of something like that. I'm sure a lot of 76ers fans would not mind seeing the year-end NBA award voting go the way that Rob handled his ballots with some Sixers well-represented. Always great stuff from Rob Mahoney of Sports Illustrated. Rob, thanks so much, man. Hey, thanks, Brian. You can follow Rob on Twitter, at Rob Mahoney, writing about the NBA and hosting a great podcast for Sports Illustrated. It's called The Breakaway. Go to SI.com or the crossover and find all of Rob's stuff there. Big thanks to Rob for taking a few minutes to chat. Thanks to TJ McConnell for sitting down after practice on Tuesday. And thank you, as always, for taking a few minutes to listen to the podcast. We'll have a rewind edition of the pod for you on Friday morning following Game 3 between the Sixers and the Heat at 7.30 at American Airlines Arena. Talk to you then. Enjoy the game. See you.